We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host, Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. While Syria's more than eight-year-old civil war grinds on, the countries flanking it to the east and west are undergoing their own convulsions, with massive protests rippling across Lebanon and Iraq. Their grievances specific to each country, but also some key similarities shared by the protests. To help break all of that down, we're rejoined by Randa Sleem, Senior Fellow and Director of Conflict Resolution and Track 2 Dialogues Program at the Middle East Institute. Randa, it's good to have you back on The Crisis Next Door. Thank you very much, Jason. Good to be back. The protests in Iraq and Lebanon erupted earlier this month, and already they've claimed one prime minister, with Lebanon's Sayyad Hariri handing in his resignation to President Michel Oun after saying he hit a dead end amid the protests. Lebanese protesters are calling for the overthrow of the political class that's dominated the country since the end of the country's long civil war in 1990. Randa, before we get into Hariri's resignation specifically, let's set the table. What sparked these protests in Lebanon and Iraq? In Lebanon, uh, what sparked uh, the protest has, is um, uh, a decision by the Minister of Communication to impose a tax on WhatsApp. And Lebanese uh, rely on social media and WhatsApp a lot. But this was just the tipping point of, or you know, of 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 uh, months and years of frustration that the Lebanese have had against um, the government's inability to provide basic services: uh, electricity, uh, healthcare, uh, waters, uh, clear wa- uh, clean water. Uh, against the corruption, which has been now endemic and institutionalized at all levels of governments, from the national level to the to the regional level to the local level, uh, at nepotism, at uh, what they felt is this increasing gap between you know the super wealthy and and uh, the rest of the population, the middle class, which has always been a strong and large segment of the Lebanese population, is really getting decimated over the last few years because of all the taxes that the government has been imposing and because also of economic policies that have not created jobs, uh, uh, that have led to theft of public funds uh, because of corruption, because of nepotism. And so, uh, so this tax that has been imposed on WhatsApp was just, you know, the, the last throw, basically, for the Lebanese. And, uh, and, and, and this protest wave, you know, is not like something new. I mean, we have had smaller scale protests now for the last few years going here and there, you know, uh, against the deteriorating economic conditions. And we have had in 2015 another protest wave when at the time the government could not deal and still does not deal with the garbage, car- with, uh, and we call it the garbage crisis. And so uh, this has been an ongoing um, frustration and, 
and over time uh, a realization by the people in Lebanon that the political system which has been in place, as you said, since, 19, since the end of the civil war in 1989-1990 um, is no longer serving them, is no longer um, you know, there to protect them or to serve their interests. And uh, by, by the way, it's the same feeling now driving the protesters in Iraq. The rules of the game that were put in place with the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, you know, brought together few political elites who worked with the Americans to design the new political system, which is, again, like Lebanon, very much based on power sharing, based on, you know, dividing the pie between different political parties defined by their sectarian identities. And so, again, the Iraqis have, you know, especially the youth have decided uh, that this political system, which has been in place since 2003, which despite the billions of dollars that Iraq has, has, has collected from the sale of its oil over, you know, the past uh, uh, years, has the, did not improve their, their life. I mean, they still have no, in Basra, which, where the majority of Iraqi oil is exported from, uh, uh, people don't have even, you know, uh, clean water. Uh, uh, electricity is not regular. Uh, uh, you don't have regular services of electricity throughout Iraq. Uh, there are safety issues, jobs, lack of jobs. You have, you know, millions of youth who are, who are sitting there without, uh, without uh, jobs, graduate students. One of the protests, in fact, that really pushed the people to go into the street en masses um, even before October was a protest by university graduate students who were uh, in the streets, outside government offices, uh, protesting for lack of jobs. And then they were met with water cannons. And there is this iconic picture of a woman, uh, of a, uh, of women university students being, you know, uh, you know, running away from these water cannons. And that really angered a lot of Iraqis and uh, created this perception among large segments of Iraqis that this government is out there for itself. These political parties are out there to, you know, promote their own interests and their own patriarchy networks, and they are not there to serve their interests as citizens. It's interesting how both the protest in Lebanon and Iraq really started over pocketbook issues. We've seen this elsewhere in the world, Chile, for example, but have now broadened to cover the power-sharing structures in both of those countries. Do you think that the average Lebanese or Iraqi would be okay with those power-sharing structures if the economies in both countries would be better than what they are right now? Look, I think power-sharing structures, at least in Iraq, have been there now since 2004, 2005. I mean, even 2004 when the you know, the interim uh, council, uh, governing council was put together on the basis of sectarian quotas, and then you had the constitution uh, formed in 2000, uh, I mean, uh, voted on in 2005. In Lebanon, uh, power sharing based on sectarian, you know, quotas have been there since the founding almost of the country. Uh, and it has been reinforced by the Taif Agreement, which was uh, signed by all political parties uh, to bring the, uh, the civil war, 15-year uh, civil war between 1975 and 1989 to an end. So the, how much is the system itself that is being rebelled against? I mean, the way it is, I mean, is it, power, is it because people have abandoned sectarian identities and want now issue-driven politics? 
and the political parties that are defined by their political platforms and not necessarily by which sect or which group or confessional group they represent? Or is it the economy that has brought to the forth uh, this debate about whether the system, which is based on sectarian power sharing, has served their interests? It's, it's hard to tell. I mean, if the economy was better, people would not be in the streets? Maybe, yes. Yes, it's likely. But the fact you have this convergence now of deteriorating economic conditions and a system that has failed to deliver on these, you know, pocketbook issues, on these basic needs of the people, then has put into question the kind of political system that is in place, which in both instances happen to be based on sectarian power sharing. And speaking of sectarian power sharing, Hezbollah has been a key member of Hariri's coalition government, and the Shia group has not been happy with the protests, saying that Hariri's departure would leave a void in Lebanon's government. We've seen a number of Hezbollah supporters attacking some of the protesters. How big of a void is Hariri's resignation, and how will that upset the government in Lebanon right now? Look, there is a governing coalition uh, which has been put in place based on an understanding uh, between these three major political stakeholders in Lebanon. Down, the free patriotic movement led by the president Aoun and his son-in-law, Gibran Basir. Then you have Hezbollah, uh, led by its secretary general, Hassan Nasrallah. And then you have the future movement, you know, led by Hariri. And this is the political coalition, in a way, which has been now in leading the government for the last nine months or so. And it took them a while to get to form a cabinet, you know, and to form a government. Uh, uh, I mean, to form the cabinet uh, uh, in, in, a recent, uh, in the past. And so the resignation of Hariri, uh, basically, or what Hariri has done, is decided to put himself on the sidelines of this coalition, he is not viewed by the protesters as, you know, as, as one of them. He is viewed as part of this regime or this political system against which they are rebelling. So what he's doing now is, on one hand, put himself on the sidelines, not totally outside the governing coalition. And, in fact, now that uh, the president of the, po- of the government, I mean the president of the republic, has to conduct, by, according to the constitution, he has to conduct parliamentary consultations, about who, uh, you know, about uh, the, 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 what the parliamentarians say in terms of their preferences for the next prime minister. And on the basis of this consultation, uh, uh, he's going to nominate a new uh, person to head the next cabinet. And given the power balance in the parliament, I mean, it's very likely that Hariri might be re-asked or re-tasked by the president on the basis of the parliamentary consultation to form the next cabinet. Now, uh, recently, today, in fact, the president said, well, it's going to be a clean government. He did not say it's going to be a different government. Uh, um, you know, he said we will try to include technocratic, uh, you know, faces in it. I don't know how, uh, you know, what kind of prime minister would be acceptable to the protesters. Now, when the protesters were asked, okay, who are your nominees for prime minister? Who are your nominees for minister in the next cabinet? Some of the leaders, although this is a protest movement that are leaderless, that, is, that remains leaderless, but some of the leading voices in the protest movement are saying, you know, it's not up to us to give you names, you government to give you names. It's, you know, it's up to our responsibility as protesters is for us to review whatever names you propose 
for prime minister or for the cabinet and to decide whether these are acceptable to us on the basis of their skills, of professionalism, uh, non-partisanship. And so I think th- this next step of, of, of nominating a prime minister and of forming the cabinet is not going to be an easy task. Again, because uh, we still don't have a dialogue going between the protesters and the government. Um, and, and the protesters today feel that, you know, they feel emboldened because their number one demand, which is the resignation of the, uh, of the prime minister and his cabinet, has been fulfilled. Their next demand is this formation of the technocratic cabinet. Who is going to populate this technocratic cabinet? This is where the next tug of war and push and pull between the government or the governing coalition on one hand and the protesters will happen. Lebanon's interior minister says the resignation of Hariri was necessary to stop the slide into civil conflict. And then Hezbollah leader Nasrallah accused foreign powers of funding the protest, trying to pull Lebanon towards a civil war. How big of a fear is it in Lebanon that there could be a repeat of what happened from 1975 to 1990? You know what? I mean, it's always there because once you have large numbers of people in the street, once you have thugs like we have seen, you know, yesterday coming in, trying to create trouble, to open roads by force, attacking protesters, you know, I mean, you, it, it can happen. But I have to say that the Lebanese army, the Lebanese right police, uh, police in general, security services, have really performed very well in in protecting the right of the protesters to peaceful demonstrations, in intervening professionally when you have this altercation between the protesters and those who are opposing to them, who are opposed to them, like we have seen yesterday. And so, so far, they seem to be able to control the situation. And also, as it's always in Lebanon, the political stakeholders, the major political stakeholders in government seem not to want to drag this into a violent confrontation between the protesters and those and their supporters, you know, because after all, we have a million, two, whatever in the street, but Lebanon is 4.5 million citizens. And so you have also at least an equal number of people who are not in the streets. Some of them are supporters of Aoun, some of them are supporters of Hezbollah, some of them are supporters of Birri, some of them are supporters of Jumblat, and some of them are just afraid, are not, I have to say, are, are hedging. They are, they are not willing to totally go into the protest movement because they don't think that these protesters can deliver, you know, in the, at the end, that as happened in 2015, you have protests, and then in the end the political system will win, and nothing changes. So you have now really a division inside, you know, among the Lebanese. You have a large numbers who are protesters. Their demands are shared by everybody in Lebanon. So irrespective of whether you are a Hezbollah supporter or a Aoun supporter, you are suffering from lack of jobs. You are suffering from lack of, you know, regular electricity transmission. You are suffering from, from pollution. You know, you are suffering from uh, corruption and nepotism. So what drives the protest, you know, the million and some who are in the street are shared. Those drives are, drivers are shared by everybody in Lebanon. Now, the Lebanese differ on how best to, you know, address these demands. You know, some believe that this sustained protest movement is the way to go. Others believe that, you know, maybe we need to see if, if a, a new government, you know, is formed and then give space for this new government to get its job. 
So this is this is where where things are. I think it's going to be, uh, you know, uh, there will be attempts, and they have already started of delegitimizing the protests. Attempts by Hezbollah, attempts even by at the, uh, as 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 recently as a few days ago by a minister who is part of Hariri's parliamentary bloc, uh, by uh, by by Aounis, you know, supporters or officials who are affiliated with uh, President Aoun's movement of saying, oh, these protesters are funded by foreign embassy, they are there to fulfill foreign agendas. So Hezbollah said part of the movement is, uh, is, is funded by the Saudis, the Israelis, the Americans, as part of the latest push or the latest installment of the U.S. Um, anti-Iran maximum pressure strategy. And today, uh, the spokesperson of the Iranian president said exactly that, said that uh, these protests are uh, being funded and pushed by the Americans, the Saudis, and the Israelis, and that... Uh, you know, they are, these, these external powers are trying to ride the wave of this, uh, of this uh, protest movement, not mentioning that Iran has been funding for years now uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon and, and, the, and, and recently the PMF in Iraq. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the protests in Iraq and Lebanon with Randa Slim senior fellow and director of Conflict Resolution and Track 2 Dialogues program at the Middle East Institute. You mentioned the performance of the security forces in Lebanon, uh, despite some violent interactions. Uh, Nothing like what we've seen in Iraq, where the death toll is already in the hundreds and the violence seems to be growing by the day. Why do you think there's such a stark difference in Iraq compared to Lebanon? I think partly is I have to say that since the end of the civil war, there has been a lot of work and funding, especially by external, by donor countries, and training led by donor countries uh, focused on the Lebanese army, focused on the riot police, uh, on the, uh, you know, security services in terms of... uh, you know, civil military relations, community policing, in terms of how to deal with riots, you know, while protecting uh, uh, protesters of uh, rights, uh, protesters' right to civil demonstrations. On one hand, that's, I think, that is a factor that has really influenced over the years, that has created this mindset within the security establishment and military establishment in Lebanon of, 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 uh, of how how uh, how uh, the military and the police should engage with protesters, so that's that's one. Um, I think there is also a long tradition of um, the army of trying to play a fair arbiter role when you have uh, power contestation in the streets between different groups of Lebanese. And I think the current uh, 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 general leading the army feels that that's the role that the army has been playing. You know, the army also, the Lebanese army, is, uh, relies heavily on funding uh, and assistance from uh, the United States. And I think the United States has been now clearly publicly and through back channel sending clear messages to the leadership of the Lebanese army of the importance of you know, being there uh, to protect the rights of protesters to peaceful demonstration. So that's one. The second, I think, it's the maturity of the Lebanese civil society. Again, like the army, there's a lot of work that Lebanese have done with the help of outside donor agencies, outside 
expertise from civil society in different countries that have gone through civil war. Since the end of their civil war, there has been a lot of work done on, on civil society, on non-violence uh, practices, on lessons learned, you know, from other um, uh, instances where you had... Uh, uh, protest movement, uh, on citizenship education. And I think that has created a certain level of professionalism and political maturity in, 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 in Lebanese society, but in Lebanese population a bit large. Uh, I mean, uh, truly, truly, um, I mean, Lebanon, with all its political uh, colors and all political groupings, with all its, you know, divides, sectarian and otherwise, really, you know, value, for example, the right of others, you know, to, to discuss the uh, right of different others. I mean, if, you, if anybody who, who looks on a daily basis, as I do at Lebanese media, I'm always, you know, you know impressed by the um, quality and the openness of discussion on Lebanese media. And you flip the TV and you look at, for example, Egyptian TV or you look at Syrian TV or you look at even, you know, um, you know any TV in, in Gulf countries. None of this openness and willingness to debate and understand views of different others uh, without, you know, degenerating into name-calling or accusing them of being traitors or any of this. I mean, all of this, so both the, the Lebanese street, the Lebanese people, the Lebanese civil society, and, and the Lebanese army, the Lebanese forces, really have, in a way, um, uh, have, have been developing over the, since the end of the civil war, and they have taken the right lessons from the civil war. They have been working within their own respective spheres of operation on how to promote debate, how to promote interactions, with people who do not share each other's opinion without resorting to violence and rather resorting to laws, rule of law, to resorting to, um, to, uh, to uh, public debates. Sectarian violence, obviously a lot more recent in Iraq's history. It, is that specter of a conflict growing between the Shiite majority and the Sunni minority in Iraq? No, I think the fear in Iraq is Shia on Shia civil war is a, you know, that we are seeing today, you know, between, for example, uh, Muqtada Stadr uh, groups and the uh, PMF who are funded by, uh, by, uh, by, uh, by Iran. Uh, I think uh, sectarian violence, as we have seen 2005, 2006, 2007, uh, Sunni Shia, I think this violence is, has dissipated. And again, what the protests in Iraq today are, are, are shared by everybody in Iraq. And the reason that you don't see, you know, uh, Sunni majorities areas um, going into the protest or protesting is because they are still afraid that if they were to go into the street en masse, they will be accused by the you know, people in power uh, as being ISIS affiliates or ISIS followers. There is this still the stigma of any kind of collective action by Sunni, especially in areas where it used to be ISIS strongholds, you know, before ISIS was defeated and kicked out of those. There is a stigma, but, and people fear that. So it's a kind of, kind of self-censorship. But if you look at social media, at Facebook postings from people in Mosul, in other, you know, area, Sunni majority area, even from people in the KRG, in the Kurdish regional government, you see, you know, people very much endorsing, supporting the protests, which, as I said, happened 
happened mostly in, in, I mean, they are happening in Baghdad, which is a mixed city, but also where the protesters are in their majority Iraqi Shia. And I think Iraqi Shia, more than Sunni or more than Kurds, feel that, you know, it is their, their duty, their role to, to reject the system, which is pretty much, you know, uh, Shia controlled. And so I think having youth, Iraqi youth, I mean, Iraqi Shia, you, Iraqi Shia youth in the streets saying no to a political system which is supposedly designed to benefit Shia is, in fact, a much more powerful indictment of, how, of, of the failure of the system. Do you see Iraqi Prime Minister Abdul Mahdi following Hariri's lead and resigning his position, and, and would it matter if he did? Look, I think I, I have predicted for some time, since the first wave of the protest early October, that it's going to be difficult for Adl Abdel Mahdi to stay in power. It's just it's going to be difficult. I think uh, uh, yesterday we have seen, you know, war of wars and public messaging between Adl Abdel Mahdi, Adil Amiri, and Sadr. Basically, Adil Abdel Mahdi sending an 800-word letter to Sadr saying, well, you have been calling for my resignation. Well, if you want my resignation, you and Adil Amiri, who control each the two largest parliamentary blocks, go to the parliament and get a vote of no confidence going and force me to resign. I mean, that's, that's legal way. I came through a, through an understand, based on an understanding between the two of you, you know, uh, and now if, if, if you go, if you, the two of you, you know, agree on, on kicking me out and vote, you know, force a vote of no confidence in the parliament, I will go. And so, um, and I think Abdel Abdel Mahdi said that partly because he knows that even though Sadr and, uh, and, and uh, Hadi Al-Amiri have the two largest parliamentary blocks in, in, in uh, they just don't have enough votes to force a vote of resignation, which requires 165 votes in the Iraqi parliament. Between the two of them, they don't have 165. Now they will need the, you know, Kurd, uh, Kurds, the Kurdish vote. I mean, they need the, the parliamentarians, uh, Kurdish parliamentarians to vote with them uh, for in a vote of no confidence. And right now, uh, as far as the KRG leadership is concerned, Adel Abdel Mahdi is, a, is really a, a, they like this prime minister, they like him, he, they think he's the best prime minister they're going to have, who is attuned to their um, and and willing to work with them in meeting um, uh, their interest in in safeguarding you know especially when it comes to their um, uh, part of the budget the revenue sharing you know already there has been a dialogue going on between the KRG and between Erbil and Baghdad on um, issues that are that lie at the at the at the core of the dispute between Erbil and Baghdad which is um, uh, revenue sharing you know and uh, and the disputed territories. So they feel that the process, there is a process in place. Adel Abdel Mahdi is uh, sympathetic to their concerns, and so if Adel Abdel Mahdi were to be removed, uh, none of the none of the typical you know f- faces who are out there who can replace Adel Mahdi will be as sympathetic and as constructive in dealing with them. And so, so I think the person who can really, as as has happened in the past, who can really force. Adel Abdel Mahdi to resign is is Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani. I mean, we have seen him in the past. He doesn't intervene directly in the retail politic arena, if we can put it this way, except when he feels that the political order is in jeopardy. And we have seen him in 2014 after ISIS took over Mosul, basically coming in and, and withdrawing support uh, for Maliki. And even though Maliki won elections and was there, uh, you, know, you know, based on elections, uh, he, he, he basically, you know, said it's time to have a, to have a different 
person in, in government. And so, so I think until now, uh, Grant Ayrullah Sistani have not done that. You know, he has called on the protesters to, you know, not to resort to violence. He has called on the government to protect the, you know, protesters' rights. He called for committees to, inviti- to investigate the violence that was perpetuated uh, early in October, and the committee gave really a report that, that, that you know, that was anything but credible, since it did not even, you know, address the issue of the uh, masked, pro- unidentified, you know, uh, snipers who basically killed a lot of the protesters early in October and who are, you know, viewed by most Iraqi officials as being um, affiliated by, uh, with Iran-funded uh, uh, militias, Iran-funded Iraqi militias. And so the investigative committee did not even mention what, I mean, laid the blame on the violence perpetuated earlier in, in October on, on the security commanders and really did not address the issue of these snipers. And that basically, again, was another evidence or another proof for the protesters that this government is not credible and is not going to really be serious about addressing or can, is not, not serious and is not able to address their concerns. And so... We are waiting now for Grant Ayatollah's sermon tomorrow on Friday. I mean, tomorrow is Thursday. So Friday, everybody is awaiting that sermon. Uh, right today, there were uh, meetings between the three presidencies, uh, the president, the speaker of the parliament, and the prime minister, to find um, a pathway out of this. Uh, uh, political parties are also meeting. Leaders of political blocs are meeting to see if they can find a way out of this. I think it would be interesting to see what will be uh, Grant Ayatollah's stance you know, through the Friday sermon that his representative will give on Friday. If he moves toward um, uh, basically pulling the cover, his, the cover away from, uh, 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 from Adel Abdel or denying his support anymore, calling for some change in government, although he does it indirectly, not says it like this directly, I think then the days of Adel Abdel Mahdi in government are numbered. Randa, to wrap it up, what are your respective confidence levels in peaceful resolutions to the protests in Lebanon and Iraq? Look, in Lebanon, I think there is, there is a pathway to a peaceful resolution. Uh, there are legal mechanisms which everybody seems to agree that they have to be followed to get to the demands to, that are formulated by the protesters. I don't see um, um, major opposition in the governing coalition to getting to a technocratic cabinet, a new electoral law. And by the way, a new electoral law, no matter how it is designed, even if it's different from whatever exists today, benefits Hezbollah. It doesn't matter. Yani. They are not going to be heard by it. So they are not going to oppose it. In fact, it's in their interest to, you know, in fact, endorse this new electoral law. In fact, I see other groups, uh, other political parties that are today not in the government and that are supporting the protesters who will be harmed by a new electoral law that is not based on sectarian apportionment of, uh, of the parliamentary seats. So there is, a, there is a pathway. It might take some time. You know, in Lebanon, nothing gets done easily. So it's going to take some time to get there. The fear is that hopefully violence will not creep in in this interim period until they get, until the Lebanese can find, them, you know, find their way to a, to, a, to a compromise. Eventually, it's going to be a compromise. Uh, but it's going to be better uh, than what we have today. Uh, it's going to lead to, you know, uh, I think because everybody in, in power, uh, be it uh, the people in government or the other political parties, uh, have realized that the days pre-October 16 
are no longer, I mean, uh, they cannot go back to the status quo ante, that um, the uh, business as usual is not going to cut it anymore, and that going forward, it has to be um, different ways of conducting government. There will be accountability that, that is a street that is motivated, mobilized. Uh, the problem is that, again, the, the, the protesters need to be able to form some kind of a leadership in order to be able to contest this political space. So far, they have not done so. Hopefully, this is something that's going to evolve, and that's why it's going to take some time. You know, you have a government on one hand, but then on the other hand, you have a protest movement representing millions of Lebanese, I mean, millions and some of Lebanese, but it's still leaderless. And to be able to contest the political space in the future when there are early elections, to be able to enter and contest this early election and bring new faces into the power, into the political equation, in parliament, in government, they need to be organized and need to have a political machinery. And I think that's going to take some time for change, real change to start happening. And hopefully no violence will, 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 will happen in the interim. Iraq, it's difficult. I think Iraq... Um, the protest movement is, t- is not as mature and as, as disciplined as it is the case in, uh, in, uh, in Lebanon. I think uh, in Iraq, um, you don't have the same kind of realization among the political elites that change is inevitable. Uh, you are going to see a lot of resistance from the political elites. Uh, they have lots of resources at their disposal, unlike Lebanon, which is really cash-strapped and poor. I mean, you have major oil resources in Iraq, uh, which can be deployed by different political parties uh, to be able to, you know, sustain any kind of position uh, to the protest. Uh, You still, as I said, don't have all of Iraq protesting. You still have a segment of Iraq. You know, I hate to speak in sectarian terms, but mostly it's Shia who are protesting. Uh, You know, it's uh, it's important for this protest to really make uh, major strides forward is that it starts to widen and and include all of Iraqi territories and not only Baghdad and southern regions. Um, And then uh, you have also Iran. Iran is going to play a much, much heavier role in preventing any change upending to the status quo in Iran, in, sorry, in Iraq, primarily because uh, the kind of threat that Iraq represents to Iran and has represented historically is different from, you know, Lebanon. I mean, Lebanon does not share borders with Iraq. Lebanon did not fight uh, eight-year war with Iraq. Uh, Lebanon did not have a, you know, long-term enmity to Iran, even under the Shah and then after uh, the Iranian revolution. So in Iraq, um, the equities and the and the let's say the threats that any change to the to the status quo in Iraq uh, uh, will face Iran with is um, will will, le- will means that Iran will be much more heavily involved in in uh, preventing the kind of compromise change in the status quo that the protesters are demanding, um, and so. So I think Iraq is a little bit more difficult, and uh, as you have said, the violence we have seen to date is really, you know, it's really um, shocking. Uh, and um, and so, you know, Muqtada Sadr said that um, he is looking at one of two possible scenarios for Iraq going forward if Adel Abdel Mahdi does not resign quickly, and he said it's going to be either like Syria or Yemen, which is a not nice scenario to look at right now. Uh, it's going to be a much tif- difficult j- road ahead for Iraq than, in my opinion, for Lebanon.
Yeah, the Middle East certainly does not need another battleground like Syria or Yemen. Hopefully peaceful resolutions in both Iraq and Lebanon. Randa, thank you once again for joining us here on The Crisis Next Door. Pleasure to be with you, Jason. Thank you. We've been joined by Randa Sleem, Senior Fellow and Director of Conflict Resolution and Track 2 Dialogues Program at the Middle East Institute. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. 